So you're an attorney and you've decided to go out on your own. Now what? You need a plan and you're not alone. Join expert host Adriana Linares and her distinguished guests on New Solo. Tune into the lively conversation as they share insights and information about how to successfully run your law firm here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, listeners. It's Adriana Linares, your host of New Solo. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope you appreciate it and learn something new. I'm a legal technology trainer and consultant. For those of you that are regular listeners, I think you know that. Um, What you may not know, though, is that last year I took on a gig, a project, at the San Diego County Bar Association. So in my regular travels, I just added San Diego into the loop, and I get to come out here one week of every month and help their members as part of a member benefit with practice management and technology questions. One of the projects that I created and really wanted to do is that of the concept of law firm makeovers. So you know how there's all these shows about restaurants being made over. And if you're a fan of the profit, you know, different businesses. And I thought, well, law firms can sort of fit right into that that mold. And I really wanted to do law firm makeovers. And it took me a minute, but I found an attorney, a member of the San Diego County Bar, who I thought would be perfect for a role like this. And that's what this episode is about. His name is David Leatherberry. He's uh, an interesting, really a, a hell of a sweet guy. And he was with a big law firm, which you'll hear about in this episode, decided to go out on his own and has an interesting niche practice. So I'm going to do a couple of interviews with him over um, the next few months, just talking about how we took his solo practice, which was still kind of new, and are transforming it into a modern, mean, lean, mobile, secure billing machine And he does good work, and that's part of what's in his heart. So I think you'll really appreciate listening to him, listening to the types of clients he has, and following along on his journey. So here we go. But before we get started, I'm going to make sure and take a couple of important minutes of your time to thank our sponsors, because they are the reason we get to produce this podcast. So Answer One is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800-ANSWER-1 or online at answer1, that's the number one, dot com. Nexa is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for lawyers. You can find out more at nexa, N-E-X-A, dot com. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio, C-L-I-O, dot com. Law Clerk, where attorneys hire freelance lawyers. There are no sign-up or monthly fees. Only pay the flat price you set. Increase your profits, not your overhead. Learn more at lawclerk.legal. Be sure to enter new solo 300 for a $300 rebate after your first project. Courtfiling.net allows you to e-file court documents with ease in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. If you file in Los Angeles Superior Court, you know that e-filing has recently become mandatory, and Courtfiling.net is there to help. 
All right, listeners. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Leatherberry. As I mentioned earlier, he's an attorney in San Diego and a member of the San Diego County Bar, who I have taken on as a project. Uh, and this is the first episode of David Leatherberry's Law Firm Makeover. So let's get started. Okay. Let's talk about you. All right. Do you want me to talk about you? Oh, no. Well, <laughs> you can start out with what you know, but no. <laughs> So you are what I jokingly refer to as a big firm refugee. I'm not the only one. I mean, we use that term out there in the world of attorneys who were with a big firm and decided to try and go out on their own. I thought you were going to mail and pale, but... Oh, no. <laughs> well, it is a podcast and they don't know what you look like. Yeah. You are male. I am male. Middle-aged, gray hair, white male. Do you think at your middle age, which you said it, I'm not going to say it, but you said it, that making this decision to go out on your own was harder or easier? Like, like what, what would David at 30 have done versus middle-aged David? Would it have been an easier jump? Well, part of it, I think some of it is my personality because at 30, you know, I also, I went, that's when I went to law school. And so, um, Oh, I, late bloomer. Yeah. Well, I had uh, other paths and I got driven, I got pulled away by a passion and that passion took me to law school. Huh. And so, uh, you know, I have, I think there's a point th there, there's a certain degree that you have to be willing to jump. That said, nobody should ever get the idea that I'm somebody who is a uh, cliff jumper or, you know, I, I, I tend to be very cautious. I need to see where the stones are before I cross the river. I need to plan. I get very anxious. I don't want to just jump. But for me, I think there, there are certainly things that make it much tougher to do later in life, whether you're 30 or 56 that you don't have when you're younger. And I think the problem you have when you're younger is you just don't know what you can do. And so you get frozen. But you have so much less risk mm -hmm. when you're younger. Right. And when you're older and you tell, you know, your 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 kids, your spouse, your professional associates and friends, hey, I'm taking a leap, they truly look at you like you you got something wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, this is a midlife crisis. Take a nap, you'll get over it. <laughs> But some of the advantages are that you've seen through enough challenges and crises that you know that you've got a pretty good chance of bouncing and landing on your feet in some way. It may not be the way you pictured it, but you, you know, you've got a pretty good chance of it turning out okay. And it has. I've been oh, happy with that. We can't wait to hear. We should back up. Yeah, I'm long-winded. I'll take you all day. So sorry. <laughs> no, I think that's okay. But we should introduce you. So we know okay. you're 56. Yes. Male. About to be 57. You're not that pale. I mean, maybe you went out in the sun it's, this weekend. It's the sun. Okay. Yeah. And you were at a big firm. Yes. Oh, and I should say we're at the San Diego County Bar Association, Bar Center 401. Bar Center 401. As it, as it is lovingly called. The fabulous downtown office. That's right. And we met, you and I. That was fun. Because I get to work here as the member technology officer. And I was looking for a project, a law firm makeover. And you called me up and said, hey, I've got a new law firm and it needs a makeover. Well, but I had, well, there was more to it. Do you there want me to is? tell? Yes. 
But first, I want you to give us just your background. So you okay. were a big firm. What kind of law do you practice? How long were you there? Why did you decide to go on your own? So uh, big firm, 14, 15 years, thereabouts. Um, firm that's across the country in pretty much in most states, mm -hmm. uh, if not every one of them. Um, I was part of a, a large national healthcare group, uh, a partner with the firm and you know, the group functioned as so many large firm groups do where your practice group is kind of a microcosm of the firm in general. It's a fiefdom, am fiefdom among the kingdom. Yes. Yes. Of, of the kingdom. As I often say, that's how, you know, I spent eight years at two of Florida's largest law firms. And that's where I got my whole learning of how law firms work. And I learned that pretty quickly. Not only are many individual lawyers very much like solo practitioners, but the practice areas are often like fiefdoms that are part yeah. of a kingdom. But I often tell, I do some teaching, I teach at a law school. And um, one of the things I tell students as well as new lawyers who are trying to meet other older lawyers is that being an associate in a firm is a little bit like working in a mall. Oh yeah? <laughs> it is. Um, because you have, you know, once you get past the grace period, um, you live according to the billable hour. And you mm -hmm. have, there's, there's certain productivity uh, thresholds you have to hit if you're gonna go anywhere. And so you can't be complacent. You can't expect work to always be coming from the partner that hired you. You have to be anticipating slow periods. And then you've gotta go shopping. And then you go to the other stores in the mall, which are the other practice groups. Okay. And you find work. And <laughs> it's true. That's a great analogy. <laughs> I think what ended up happening was because of my own, uh, some of my just life experience, as well as sometimes there was just a bit of a, maybe it was serendipity. I made a connection with a certain uh, sort of client base that was a very niche uh, base. And so that started growing and it became very much why I'm doing what I'm doing now. But um, as it grew, then I think the firm had to figure out what to do with me because I was a, an associate in some ways, but I was also bringing in hmm. um, enough that uh, I think it became too expensive to pay me bonuses. So they really? made, made me a partner instead. Oh, I was going to say, okay. <laughs> so now you've made it. Did you mean to develop a, so you're a niche, I'm a niche conversation. Actually, I, I, I tend to be, I uh, prefer niche, but I recently had part of my house redone by a woman from Israel and, and she kept talking about the soap niches and I could never figure out what she was talking <laughs> about. So from since then, it's been niche. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Did you realize you were building a niche practice or did it sort of happen? And then the firm said, oh, wow, well, that's an interesting niche practice. Or was it some, you know, because a lot of times firms will purposefully see an opportunity, a space and go for it. Well, in, in my limited experience, niches, niches uh, are not necessarily a first tier firm target mm -hmm. because you tend to want to go, at least from the, the marketing exposure I had, you tend to want to go for broad base areas that might be underserved that have the depth to, to um, absorb um, rate structures that can be profitable. And when you're talking about niches, you tend to be talking about areas that don't necessarily have a lot of insurance uh, behind them or they don't, um, you know, there may not be a number of practitioners. They're easily absorbed by a single expert. 
And so it's, you know, it, it can be expensive to get into that. At the same time, and this is, again, I think it's good advice for younger lawyers, is that, uh, and I see this in medicine all the time, is that if you develop a specialization in an area, we're in a very complex road right now, and eventually somebody is going to tap into that area and need help, and there's going to be nobody else there. And that's an ideal spot to be in, or at least it's a pretty rewarding spot. Yeah. And I think the personal relationships you get out of that uh, were rewarding for me. So I did not target, I didn't set out one day and say, okay, what niche can I go uh -huh. find? Um, although I know people will try to do that. Uh, it may sound a little bit cliche, but it actually evolved out of things that I liked doing and people I enjoyed working with. And, and this is where two parts of my life came together. So I mentioned that I left you know, in my mid-30s, I decided to go to law school because I had become passionate. And I'd become passionate about advocacy. Uh, particularly, I started working as a, a what's called a court-appointed special advocate, a CASA with Voices for Children. Because I had a, a rewarding job, I had a corner office in a firm or in, a, in an office on, uh, in the financial district in San Francisco. I wasn't yet a lawyer. I wasn't working for a law firm. But I decided I want to go, I want to do this advocacy work. And so through that, through the child advocacy, I started working with the mental health system. And throughout all of that experience and then going to law school and graduating law school, um, I continued connections and doing advocacy work in different areas of mental health. And then what I found is while I was working with the firm and I was doing health law and representing institutions, skilled nursing facility, doing patient care cases, uh, some other uh, transactional things that came up with larger institutions, I was doing a lot of pro bono work, volunteer mm. hours on the mental health side. And so I even, you know, I got a, a service award through the San Diego County Bar and something through the state. Uh, it was called the Wiley Emanuel Award for pro bono services oh. for the mentally ill. And, but this was something that wasn't attractive to the firm because that's not an area with any money. Of course not, especially not a big firm. Not a big firm, no. Right. No. So I was considered, I get sort of nicknamed in a, in a somewhat uh, derogatory way, the, the pro bono lawyer. You're the, you're <laughs> those <laughs> damn lawyers that just want to do good sometimes. No, Gosh. they're all good people and people did great pro bono things. I mean, I could tell you wonderful stories, but yeah. it's just hard yeah. to maintain that balance while working in in a firm where you have to be very conscious of the fact that you are a business, you're a large business, and you have to be focused on the bottom line. The kingdom rules. All right. Was, so you did that for 13 or 14 years. Yeah. And then you were a partner. I mean, you probably could have glided right into retirement, Dave. Id. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody glides into retirement anymore. And it's, you know, it's hard because being, uh, being a partner, there are different levels of partnership. And, and so there's always somewhere higher on the ladder to go. Uh, I certainly hadn't stopped moving up um, or, or moving, you know, I was, I was still, uh, there was still a lot of growth to happen as, yeah. as a partner. But there, there were just a number of things that were happening in my life at that time that I finally had to begin to listen to my inside chatter that I wasn't happy. Wow. Um, and I wasn't healthy. I mean, there were just a number of things that were yeah. just coming together. And, and, you know, at that point in life, uh, you know, there were other things that begin to exert pressures. Uh, I had both parents who were terminally ill. My father had been diagnosed with mesothelioma and uh, was 
needing a lot of care fairly rapidly hmm. uh, as he was decompensating. And so he had he had care, but you know what people don't realize is that there are you know doctor's appointments. There were times when I had you know be driving him to one doctor's appointment, get back, pick up my mother, drive her immediately to the next doctor's appointment, and then you've got to go back in and still figure out how you're going to get the time build, right. you know, and in, in for work. And I was doing it, but you're burning the candle at all ends. And so it was a matter of that, those pressures and then somewhat of an internal, you know, you start looking inside. You yeah. start saying, I'm not happy. And, you know, I'm fudging words here. I mean, you can get really unhappy. I was getting clinically depressed. Right. Um, well, and there's so much of that that happens in this profession. And we hear about it all the time to, to face it front, you know, face to face and say, okay, well, now I've got to really change something or it's not going to get better on its own, right? Well, and this you're you're dead dead right, absolutely right. Um, this is another one of my sort of pet projects is that um, you know in the profession, and there's a lot of press out there about how lawyers struggle with substance abuse and um, and mental illness, depression. Uh, we have a very high index for depression, and it starts in law school. And there have been some really interesting studies mm -hmm. that show how actually there's a certain amount of self selection that goes on because there are characteristics of depression that are very successful in law school. Uh, for example, anxiety about details. That tends to make you a pretty good pretty candidate good for yeah. depression. Well, it also <laughs> makes you... Oh my God! It's a characteristic of depression because it's a part of an anxiety disorder. I'm not a clinician, so I can't... I don't want to say it's diagnostic, but uh, depression is an anxiety disorder. And so there are a number of things that the personalities that tend to succeed in law school also tend to be prone to, to depression. And, um, you know, I'd reached some pretty desperate spots. And at the same time, you know, I was still doing all this pro bono stuff, right? I was still getting calls uh, every day from healthcare providers. And it was, the range was starting to expand from just, uh, from San Diego to San Francisco. I mean, people of uh, Visalia, of all places, uh, out near Sacramento, and so I started penciling out how much would I need to survive, and if these people were willing to pay just, you know, whatever amount, trying to figure it out, you know, could I make a go of it? So when you say these people, you're talking about practitioners. Practitioners who were calling, and and there was a lot of word of mouth, uh, sort of. About the traffic, pro bono lawyer. About the pro bono lawyer. So <laughs> your pro bono work then was geared toward. Doctors? Is, yeah. Okay. It and, had become geared towards, I'd moved from the patient side doing, you know, I used to do a lot of advocacy work with children, mentally ill, homeless, and sadly enough, they go together. Actually, I'll give you a funny story if I can. I don't know. Tell me if I'm talking too much. This is your story, David. You can tell me all your fun stories. <laughs> So when I went to uh, law school um, and I was in, I think it was the second semester and I'm thinking, okay, this is expensive. And um, I wanted to figure out a way to maybe save some money. Uh, and so I went to the dean and said, you know, I'm doing these uh, court appearances in the dependency court working with minors. I have to do court reports. I have to uh, talk to the judge. Can I get some academic credit for this as being like clinic? Huh. And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> You know, nope. nice, thanks. Um, but you're not a second year, you're a first year. And it happened uh, that there was a, um, uh, one of the clinic directors was in the waiting room at that time. And she specialized in behavioral health issues and working with homeless, mentally ill. 
And so she stopped me on the way out of the office and said, you know, because my, my work was all with children. She said, if you're working with children long enough, it's not long before they end up in the mental health system, which is something I learned pretty quickly. And that's because behavioral health is the, the stopgap uh, for family services. We run out of places to take care of kids in foster care. So they end up in in psych settings. So she offered me uh, essentially, you know, position, and the law school then paid wow. much of my law school tuition in exchange for my working with that clinic. And uh, I ended up staying with that clinic after I graduated, uh, teaching law students. But I stayed there probably I don't know eight ten years. Wow. Before we hear the next part of the story, let's just take one quick second or two and hear a message from our sponsors. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 1-800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Courtfiling.net, your solution for electronic filing in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. Courtfiling.net provides a better e-filing experience so you can spend more time helping clients. Because they know that work sometimes happens after hours, Courtfiling.net offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit them at Courtfiling.net to receive 30 days of unlimited free electronic filing and see how you too can e-file court documents with ease. All right, we're back. David Leatherberry's telling us all about your background and your big firm background and then the interesting circumstances that got you through law school and how you ended up building a niche practice and unfortunately getting a little bit jaded at your big firm with all the resources and the cushiness of a big firm. So you started thinking maybe I need to do something different? I did. I mean, a number, and we can talk about big firm it rewards and frustrations. Sure. And, and I certainly recommend people, you know, if they have that opportunity, there's a lot to learn through having a, a, a practice in that setting in terms of, as you said, resources mm-hmm. and reshaping your priorities. Uh, but at the same time, for me, at least, there were priorities I didn't want to let go of. And that priority was... Even priorities, I think the wrong word. It was a relentless dedication that I just couldn't let go of. And that was to individuals that I saw, and these individuals fall in all all different walks of life, um, who are trying desperately to do something, to build something, who want the help of professionals, of lawyers particularly, but can't get access to them. And are you talking about the doctor doctor clients? What surprised me in my case, yeah, it was because, healthcare providers. So, okay, right, let's call them healthcare providers. Well, I say that because there, so much of the discipline, I don't want to limit it to doctors. Yes. There, there are physician assistants, there yep. are nurse practitioners, and then in behavioral health, you've got psychologists, you've got psychiatrists, yeah. clinical social workers, and, and all of them fall into this, where they're trying to build healthcare professional right. practices. And I can respect that from my side of the world, which is, I often use the term legal professionals, because that also means the legal secretaries, the assistants, Mm -hmm. the um, office manager. So, all right. What I think is interesting is when you're talking about, I'm sure anyone who just, 
you know, didn't know where this was going, listening to this and hearing you talk about doing pro bono work and giving away free advice and helping these individuals that needed help were probably sitting there thinking you were talking about indigent um, citizens of the community, but you are talking about a middle class, if not an upper middle class of professionals who can't get the legal help that they need to help them do their job, which is in turn helping maybe some of those people that listeners thought you were talking about. <laughs> uh, well, that's absolutely true. And it certainly began with, with the former in, in, you know, in doing work uh, with clients who would come into my meeting after, five minutes after I'd meet with them. And because I was dealing with people who struggled with mental illness, I'd come back then, and in that five minutes, somehow they'd lost all their clothes. I mean, they were <laughs> they were very disorganized thought processes. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember doing hearings where the judge would tell me, "I hope your argument's going to be quick because your client stinks." You know, these are sure. working at that level is very, very. Uh, it's an acute level, and um, where you're dealing with people with just serious levels of of illness poverty on the streets, finding ways to get by in sometimes in tragic ways, sometimes in completely hilarious ways, oftentimes with a lot of self-reflection, understanding that, you know, that other people might be critical of their lifestyle. Uh, but then realizing that the people, and this is the point you made, exactly the point, realizing that the people who were working with them and trying to help them, they themselves needed help. And in looking at what, what I called frontline responders were doing on a daily basis, I realized there's no way I could do that for long term. It's, and I don't know how people do it. Yeah. Um, it. It is the struggles and the crises and the stress that occur. And so I, you know, whenever possible, if somebody wanted to ask me a question, I would do my best to sit, listen, and help them find an answer if I didn't, didn't, didn't have it. And that started to, that's what started to spread. And so I became focused, realizing that, and it's not just psychologists or doctors, physicians, but radiologists, um, community clinics. There are a couple of clinics I work with up in the Bay Area who uh, work with large populations, but they don't have a lot of resources. They rely on donors, they rely on grants, they rely on public money. And so for them to pay Big firm, uh, big firm rates. money, and for me, you know, that ranges from. My, I remember having lunch or dinner, sorry, with three lawyers from three different firms, um, each firm, each of which charged over twelve hundred an hour. Oh my god! Um, to um, to work with clients, and so there are times when that kind of access is, you know, it's worth that money. Uh -huh. You know, if you want the Secretary of Health, the former Secretary of, of HHS Services to be uh, an employee, then you're going to pay that. Yeah. Um, but for most people who are doing, you know, the kind of work that I was confronted with, they don't need that and they can't pay it. Right. And they shouldn't pay it. Well, it's become my little mission. Right. I know. <laughs> I love that about you. It's your mission. So... Yeah. In recapping the story, or just continue in continuing the story, then you saw this opportunity, but well, it's one thing to put it on paper, and so over the course of a year, you know, I started kind of thinking this through and asking what if questions and pulling colleagues, friends, people that I trusted um, aside and saying, you know, what do you mm. what do you think? How expensive is it? So I started reading some articles uh, that were available actually through bar associations about starting a small firm huh. practice, what the costs were, um, and putting together checklists of what do I have to expect? 
or what do I need to expect? And what sort of resources do I have already? And then you have to pick and choose because, you know, there, there are some models out there that are out of the back of your car uh, with a <laughs> cell phone. Right. Um, and that wasn't going to work for me, although I often thought that it might actually work to be what I called the shopping cart lawyer out there working with my client base, homeless and mentally ill, <laughs> giving out free advice. Well, yeah, that would work. I mean, you would fit in, you know, to the community. Yeah. It's good to blend with your with your clients. Yeah. So wait, I have a backup question. Yeah. When you started sort of saying to colleagues or other people, and specifically I'm asking you this question about other lawyers that you may have said, hey, I'm sort of thinking about going out on my own. Did you find that most lawyers thought, oh my gosh, you're crazy. You've got it so good. That sounds like a lot of work. Or did you often hear, I would love to do that. I wish I had either the courage or the resources to be able to do that. What did you hear from your peers? I heard a number of things. None of it negative. Um, and, and I'll start with myself. When, when I, the first time I encountered it, I was, you know, with a firm. And, and at this point, I think I was maybe a senior counsel, maybe a senior associate. I don't know. But in that middle tier, mm -hmm. or lower middle tier. And um, there was somebody who'd been a mentor to me who was not yet a partner. And he walked in one day and said he was leaving. And I said, where are you going? And you always expected someone to a name the other firm. firm. Right. 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 And Sometimes you even would hazard a guess because you knew the other firms out there and we just sort of traded lawyers yeah, from time right. to time. And he said, I'm going on my own with my brother. Um, he was going to go out and set up his own shop. And I, I remember just looking at him with a little bit of, maybe it's awe. Uh -huh. uh, there was a certain amount of, wow, how do you do that? Sure. I mean, it was just, how do, how do you do that? Because you certainly didn't learn how to do that in law school. No, you don't. And, you know, you've got bills to pay. You've got mouths to feed. Yeah. You've got, how does that song go? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. And we're not drinking. Yeah. You know, and you, th you think about this. You think about all the responsibilities and then you come up with one answer. No No way. way. I hate um, that answer. And and you try to find independence different ways. For me, independence was important. I mean, that's just something that uh, was part of my, my core. And so it made a firm life a bit of a, there was some tension there, there for me. Independence in who I, in the type of case that I took and who I represented, um, whether I took other work, you know, a number of different things. And, and you find different ways of doing that. And the best way you can do, again, niche practices. You're, not, you're going to have smaller practice groups. Mm -hmm. Other people don't have much to say about your practice. Yeah. And so that's a way of getting independence is you're kind of your own, uh, own practice group in some ways. And so I liked that. But there was still always what if. Uh, and what I found is when I decided to make that announcement, a whole spectrum of responses. One is um, you'll be back. Oh, wow. Don't you challenge me. Well, no, it was, it was more along <laughs> the lines, it was somewhat an observation of kind of some inevitability. There were a number of lawyers uh, that had left and gone done, done different things and then had come back. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sort of idea of, um, you know, Hotel California, you can check out anytime yeah. you like, but you can never leave. And at the same time, if you do good work and you build good relationships and the firm, which, and this firm was, you know, they're good people and, and a lot of loyalty there. And so I think they also wanted just to assure me that if I wanted to come back, yeah. the door would be open. I was actually going to ask you that. So hearing that, did it sort of 
set a sort of safety net for you mentally, even if it wasn't in the front of your brain, maybe somewhere in the back, you just thought, you know what, I can always come back. I think that is a bit of a safety net. Not that I can come back here because there's also a certain amount, at least in my mind of, you know, we call it the sort of walk of shame. It's, oh, you're back. (laughs) God. How nice. How was that for you? (laughs) The dishes are waiting for you in the kitchen. Yeah, we've been expecting you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's, there's that aspect. But also knowing that, you know, once you've figured out you know, a practice and uh, who the other firms are or players in that market. And you know how firms work. There's a certain amount of confidence that you could go somewhere else. It's harder because you also look at compensation issues. And and the biggest, one of the biggest limiting factors is how tied you are to your own um, compensation structure. Are you living at the maximum level of your means. Right. And in which case it's hard to move. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if if you know that there's a bill that has to get paid and you've got to be bringing in a certain amount in order to get it next month, you know, that makes it difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, I ran into people who had gone out on their own and they were very affirming. You know, they said it was the best. um, And they had some practical advice talking about how there's a sweet spot of being in a small, being a very small firm. And then how in their experience, how when they got to midsize, the expenses started becoming so uh, significant, so burdensome that it made it difficult to function. And so they uh, had to give it up and had left their own firms in order to join a bigger firm. Wow. One of the ways that our firm grew so successfully, especially during the economic downturn over the past uh, 10, 15 years, off of my dates, but uh, was that they... There were firms that became financially struggling. And they took them. And yeah. They bought them or merged they, they them were, in, folded yeah, them in. Purchased, bought them in, merged them. Um, I like and, to say they just took them. <laughs> like the Borg. Just took them. I can see that you have a certain certain, certain perspective. <laughs> <laughs> the big Borg cube yeah, traveling through space, share absorbing. Yeah, I'm big from experience too. <laughs> no, but they, you know, so many of them, I think heartfelt, in a very legitimate, heartfelt way, said, look, if you have questions, call me or good for you. Yeah. You know, I wish I could be doing it Such again. Such a giving community. Uh, but at the same time, it is hard to go back to somebody, you know, and take their time and say, hey, you know, what do I do? How do I do this? And I think the people that you can go back to are, are far and few between. Um, but there was a lot of support that way. Ironically, my firm became my first client. No kidding. Um, I left the firm on Friday and Monday got a call. No way. Hold on. Let's take another quick break from our sponsors before we hear this hilarious story. Law Clerk is where attorneys go to hire freelance lawyers. Whether you need a first year to perform legal research or a seasoned attorney to assist with a complicated appellate brief, Law Clerk has hundreds of freelance lawyers with every level of experience and expertise. There are no sign-up or monthly fees. Only pay the flat fee price you set. Increase your profits, not your overhead. Learn more at lawclerk.legal. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and then get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up with the code NEWSOLO10. That's NEWSOLO10. And do that at Clio.com, C-L-I-O.com. 
Okay, so let's hear it. You left on Friday. Goodbye, kingdom. Hello, soloness. <laughs> and then your first call on Monday was the same firm? <laughs> I think you're going into a Simon and Garfunkel song. I may have been. It sounds like one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so my office went from you know, the, the, the 16th floor to my Barco lounger <laughs> and my commute went from 40, 45 minutes to, I don't know uh, if I counted stopping in the kitchen and getting right. coffee, four maybe. minutes, <laughs> maybe. And I got a call fairly early in the morning and, uh, to be honest and accurate, I mean, it was not, this was not going to be the, I wasn't sitting there waiting for a call. I had work to do. I left with some of these clients and we can talk about them another time. Sure. And there was also a significant client that was encouraging me to make this move. Oh, really? I and hear that happen a lot, actually. That was the, the difference. You know, it was one of those things where I thought, okay, obviously somebody's trying to tell me something. And if I don't do this, I just get a permanent neon stupid sign yeah the universe is going to flash the right no it's not they're not even a flash that they're going to attach it permanently <laughs> yeah right on my forehead right <laughs> this guy was given every chance in the world and he's an idiot because they get but sitting there i got a phone call uh and it was uh, an attorney i had just begun working with there at the firm a very very smart guy that i had a lot of respect for who was doing uh, working with healthcare, larger healthcare systems, and uh, the ones that can pay twelve hundred dollars an hour. Yeah, the ones that I mean, they've got more access, and it was challenging. It was good work. I could have learned a lot by staying and continuing to work with them, but they needed somebody that was going to continue to service this client for a while, and so they asked if I could, and I was happy to. But the interesting thing is that when you go solo, your rate structure changes. Yes. And I, they said, so what? what's your rate? What would you well, want? Well, I hope you, at that point, as a solo who could control your rate structure, decided that whatever you had decided on on Friday doubled. It doubled. <laughs> I think it went past that. Excellent. But, you know, well, the point is, is because, you know, from the, the difference between in-house where you're paying staff and, and, yeah. and now you're setting it's what's effectively an outside rate. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, all right, this is going to be a client rate. Not trying to gouge anybody, but at the same time recognizing, and this is something I still struggle with, recognizing that it, that time is getting spent. I'm spending it either on that client or on that project or on some other project. And if I give something away, then I am not earning that money. It's lost. It's an opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. And I still tend to be very, very generous and liberal with giving time away too much. So, but you keep was, saying that we should work on that. Yeah, we'll work on that. Okay. But yeah. We'll, we'll get a therapist in here. Yes. But, um, <laughs> it's, but the, you know, they said, so what is your rate? And not being smart enough to know better. I just said, this is my rate. And uh, there was some choking, gagging, and coughing on the other side of the phone. And they said, no, we met the rate for us. And and said, said, oh. That's the rate. That is the friends and family rate. You that's the friends and family them. rate. That's the discount. Good for you. So we, we discounted it a little bit more. But it was an eye-opener for me because I had never known what the firm was paying its independent contractors. Uh -huh. And they were seeing me now as an independent contractor and wanted to, to pay that rate. And the way I saw it was, no, I am a specialist. I'm a firm that specializes in a particular area. This is the rate you're going to pay. And later on uh, that year, uh, when 
I was working with a healthcare client, the one that sort of went with me, wanted me to go. And we ran into a very novel issue uh, that re really required a number of different looks, second opinions uh, from people who are specialists, because this was an area where truly there was no, nothing black and white, nothing, not even guidance material. You had to read the tea leaves as oh. to how uh, licensing would look at this hospital. And so we went out to another firm and they didn't give me a friends and family rate. I mean, that was one of those $1,200 yeah. an hour firms where they yep. said, yeah, it's going to be 1200 an hour. Jeez. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, I mean, that didn't last forever, but it probably went on for, it went on for several months and it was when it, it was just kind of funny, uh, yeah. but it also helped give a little bit of assurance that, all right, this is, this is going to be okay. And, um, are they still a client? We're still friendly, okay. um, but we're, they're not a client. And I do mean, they send you business? So it's interesting. So they don't, but other larger firms who were peers, you might mm -hmm. say, in that same sort of market tier, uh, have started sending me clients That's because great. it's starting to get out that there are, are lawyers who can work with uh, small groups and individual healthcare providers, doctors, as mm -hmm. you say. Sure. I and, like, I like, I mean, even doctors, you know, you, we tend to think, all right, they're, they're making a bunch of money, but they've got practices and they've got high right. debts and they're paying for very expensive equipment and they're paying for personnel. And the idea of paying large rates or high rates for them is very, very difficult. And, Prior to going out on my own, I was in a number of transactions where I'd be representing, say, a hospital side, and the physicians would fire their counsel halfway through the deal because they just got too concerned about money. And that that's a bit of a train wreck. Right. Uh, it's one thing to switch horses. It's another to just jump off your horse. <laughs> right. No horse needed here. <laughs> um, I want to back up just a little bit. So on that fateful Friday, or not so fateful, but fortuitous Friday, when you said goodbye to your firm... So you decided to do it. You you realized that your health and wellness may have been suffering at the same time that you saw this potential opportunity, and you had a client that was encouraging you to go on your own on your own, which is a big deal to know you have at least one client, whether it was one or a handful. Because a lot of times when I meet new attorneys or new solos, that's the biggest question: is where will my clients come from? So you were lucky enough to have this client saying, let's do this. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Okay, I mean, I let's. think that's, that's a really interesting um, concern. And actually, I was going to share with you one point, you may have to take this out or put it somewhere else. But one of the things that sort of affirmed my decision was in the day I was leaving, a person came by, a young woman came by and said, you know, she was sorry I was going and it was nice working with me, all those nice things. Uh -huh. And I looked at her and I asked her, are you new to the firm? And she said, no, I've not really. I've been here, I think, six months, nine months. Well, where do you work? Where's your office? Across from yours. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's embarrassing. <laughs> it was embarrassing. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, you just stop. You get focused on your work. You get focused on your client. And, and yeah, I hadn't noticed this. <laughs> I thought, okay, it's Colleague time for a game change. Hall, right. Another one of those moments where you're like, wow, I'm my, my mind is not where it should be. My, no, no, no. It's time, time to go. And that had actually happened to me a few other times. So I decided, all right, that's another oh. good thing. Well, that's pretty amazing. So, all right, let's talk about clients because that is, that's huge. That's the heartbeat of, sure. of this whole, whole endeavor. 
Um, well, I mean, ask the technologist at the table and she's going to tell you technology is the heartbeat of the endeavor, but we'll get to that. Okay, let's let's go your way. Clients. Wouldn't you rather say that technology is the brain? I might. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, like we'll, we'll leave that out there as a working We're theory. We're going to pin that right there for okay. now. All right. So clients. One, just in my experience, just my own sort of professional experience, life experience, you know, I'm a firm believer in you. Even the things that you look at and you think are solid, you can't take it for granted. You can't build a plan around one client or two clients. And even with this... I mean, you can, but... It's high risk. High risk. Right. I mean, you know, diversification. And in the type of work that I did... Um, it wasn't, you know, for example, I'd done toxic tort cases where you deal with an insurer or a particular, particular large client, and they're going to send you volume work on a long-term basis so long as you're doing good work. But the people I worked with aren't like that. Uh, they come and they have a project and they go. And they might have another project in another six months, but you can't rely on that. So I mm. couldn't look at the clients I'd been working with over the past six months and count on them to sustain me. So each matter, so to speak, has a short life short cycle. Life. Right, okay. short life cycle. Or can. I should say they can have a short life cycle. Well, they frequently do. I mean, especially with business transactions, mm -hmm. uh, which I was starting to do a fair amount of. Uh, these are not large systems that go out and do multiple uh, business transactions. For example, since, you know, more recently and since I've been out of my own, I have started doing work with a large multi-state uh, healthcare enterprise. And they do these transactions on a regular basis. And they're starting to try to build up or starting to build a, a, a relationship. But most of the ones I did, you do the transaction and then it goes away. And they might have some work, little bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. um, so again, that's not something that's attractive to a large firm. So I had to look not at who of my clients that I've served in the last six months are going to stay with me. But can this trend, is there evidence to suggest that this trend will continue? That there will be other new people who are going to come in the door? Sure. And that's a little dicey. In the first year I looked at it, it was my, my data pool, so to speak, was too small. I thought, okay, six months, that's not enough. I put the decision back in a box. But after I was able to look at it and say, all right, over the past two and a half, three years, I could see that there was both a trend that was escalating and there was a pretty strong probability that whatever was happening over the last six months would continue over the next six mm -hmm, months. Mm -hmm. And having that additional client who stepped in and said, not that we're going to be with you forever. In fact, they had a long track record of firing counsel. Okay. Um, so I didn't think this was going to be a long-term relationship, although it's so far turned out to be. But I looked at what were the projects we had and how long was that going to take? And so I could say I've got six months. You had of, a runway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a runway. It reminds me of when I, so I was at a big firm too. Yes. Yes. How was that to you? Tell me about it. Yes. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear about me, but I'll say this real quick. So yeah, I was at two big Florida firms and decided to go out on my own, but not knowing when. And I got a call from a firm who saw me speak and said, hey, do you know anybody who does what you do? We need someone for eight weeks in Savannah, Georgia. And I did that. I said, well, here's at least a client for eight weeks. And surely another one will come along. That gave me an eight-week window to yeah. find more clients. And then sounding like what you're about to say, they just kept coming because 
there was so many law firms, obviously, but um, it worked out. But that was the important part was at least having that runway, that safety net for X number of, for you, whether it was dollars or months. And for me, it was specifically eight weeks, but then it worked out, but that made it easier for me to decide to go out on my own. That's exactly it for, for me, at least. My experience was not that this is forever or even two years. Um, it was, all right, I can look out say three, six months, and I've got reasonable assurance that I'm going to be okay over that period. Right. I may have to start looking for part-time work or go down and uh, start, you know, practicing my <laughs> do you want fries with that, um, you know, towards the end of it. But, and then what has happened uh, is, you know, there, there's just somebody new. That yeah. keeps, and I, and sometimes when I start to get press, I feel anxiety about, you know, workflow or start to get down or, or I start to, Sometimes I'll I'll be resistant to finishing a project because I don't want it to be over, uh, which isn't a good thing. It's part of procrastination. <laughs> and I have to remind myself that, wait a minute, next Monday, there's a pretty good chance between Monday and Friday, somebody's going to call and need something new. And so far, that hasn't let me down. That's great. Of course, like we said, I said a minute ago, the biggest fear I hear from new lawyers or new solos is that, like, where will the work come from? And you know, sometimes it takes a little longer, but just believing, and I tell lawyers this all the time, you're going to be fine. Just believe that the clients are going to be there, that you're going to find them and they're going to find you. And I mean, you can't do it thinking they're not going to come around. I mean, then you would never take the leap. So you just got to believe. You know, it's interesting. It, it, I don't know if you believe, I mean, uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it. You've got to be willing to jump in the face of doubt. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a year ago, um, I was in Colorado and with my son, we were doing some rafting and they pulled the rafts up to a, a wall, a cliff wall, and um, said that this is where they all invite or where they invite people to go cliff jumping. Oh my God. Now I'm 50, I was 56. It was still this year, I guess. And so I thought, you know, and I've never done anything like that in my life. I'm going to try. You're going to try. Why not? You know, I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a whirl. It wasn't a huge cliff. Okay. Huge it, it may not look huge from the bottom looking up, but when you stand on top looking down, it's it's a big, it's a different thing. And the reason I, I bring this up is because there is a desire, a strong desire in me to, to do it. And in at some part of my thought process, I realized that intellectually at least, there was a strong probability that it was going to be okay. Yeah. And so when I went out and stood on the edge and looked down and my knees immediately went soft and <laughs> my feet started to tremble, I thought, okay, this is just my reaction. It shouldn't necessarily stop me. And so I just backed up and decided I wasn't going to look as I went off and just jumped. And it was fine. Of course it was. It was fine. You know, there's always risk. And somebody once also des described to me that um, courage is the willingness to accept fear uh, or to take action in the presence of fear. And I think that's exactly what it comes down to. Yeah, for sure it's courage. Um, sometimes you have to find it. Well, I think it's been a really fun intro episode to our series of your law firm makeover, which we haven't even gotten to talking about how you actually did it, aside from deciding that you were going to go out on your own, telling everybody, leaving your law firm, setting up shop in your living room, having a client, getting a client. But when we come back in our next uh, talk, we're going to talk about the logistics Okay. And the decisions that you made about technology and marketing, you've got a 
Let's see, how long have you had that awesome new logo that I like so much? Just a couple weeks? A couple weeks. Yeah. So we're <laughs> going to catch up more and more and um, and talk about this again in our next episode. But before I let you go, we didn't do a very good job of introducing you from the beginning because we just started yapping as you and I do. Yeah. So tell listeners a little bit about yourself insofar as, I mean, we can surmise and figure out your practice area, but tell everyone your name, where you practice, um, the specialty that you have, if you want to talk about that, and any other information you want to give them. So I am um, David Leatherberry, and the law firm is, uh, as of just a few weeks ago, Leatherberry Law, a professional corporation. Yeah. And... Uh, I do healthcare, uh, healthcare law now exclusively. It's all pretty at this point now. It's all all healthcare, all working with providers. Uh, most of it is behavioral health. That's been a very strong niche, uh, but uh, that certainly expands into other areas of practice, uh, from physical therapy to physicians, OBGYNs. Uh, most of it is on the. Uh, Transactional side, I do a lot of advice and uh, counsel work, regulatory work, and there's a vision there, which I'm sure we'll talk about. We are going to talk time. about that because that's one of the things that I love about you so much is the the vision that you have for providing broader scope of services at an affordable and tech savvy way. Yeah, exactly. Well, great. So, we'll see you. you next time. It's been a pleasure. Okay, listeners, I sure hope you enjoyed getting to know David Leatherberry. He'll be back in future episodes of New Solo to tell us more about his law firm makeover. I want to thank you for listening to another episode of New Solo on Legal Talk Network. Don't forget, if you like what you've heard today, we'd really love a five-star rating from you on iTunes. And um, of course, you can always email me with any comments or questions you have about the show, newsolo at legaltalknetwork.com. If you have any suggestions for topics, for um, if you have any questions, you can email some questions. One of these days, I'll do a question and answer episode. Just need to get some of those questions lined up. So think about that. Communicate with me. I'm available and always happy to hear from you. We'll see you next time. And remember, you're not alone. You're a new solo. Thanks for listening to New Solo with host Adriana Linares. Tune in again to learn more about how to successfully run your new practice. Solo, here on Legal Talk Network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.